right, let's go ahead and get started. Thanks so much to everyone for coming today. Um, and I'm glad everyone found the space. This is a brand new space. I have never even been in this room before, so it's a bit of a challenge to find, and I, I'm really glad to see everyone here bright and early on, on a Friday morning. Um, so welcome to the, the first seminar in the brand new Harvard Kennedy School Gender and Security Seminar Series. Um, I'm going to start off with just a little bit of introduction about the series itself, and then a couple of brief announcements, and then I'll turn it over to our speaker for today. Um, my name is Dara Cohen. I'm an associate professor of political science at the Kennedy School, and I teach and research on the causes and consequences of war, um, and have a particular interest in issues of gender and gender and political violence. Um, so I'm, I was really delighted to have the opportunity to, to coordinate and organize this new seminar series. So the, the plan for the Gender and Security Seminar Series is that we will cover issues of national security in the fall and issues of international security in the spring. And I'm still currently thinking of what the topic will be for the spring. So if you have some, some ideas about some topics and things we can focus on, please, please let me know. Um, so we'll feature speakers from both the academic world and also the policy world in the spirit of, of the Kennedy School. Um, academics in general will be workshopping new research or be discussing some of their recently published work and policy speakers will, will ask them to speak on some of their perspectives on contemporary political issues. So the theme for this fall um, is the topic of women serving in combat roles in national militaries, both in the US military and also militaries abroad. Um, so I want to just say that there are two other speakers scheduled for the fall on this theme. The first, uh, we are really honored to have former Secretary of Defense and the current Director of the Belfer Center, Ash Carter, next Friday, um, also at 10 a.m., and that will be in um, Bell Hall, and he'll be giving a talk titled, My Decision to Open Up All Military Positions to Women. We'll be talking about some of his kind of personal thoughts and some of the politics of the decision. Um, and then the final speaker for the fall semester will be on Wednesday, November 15th. It will feature Professor Megan McKenzie, who is actually a former WAP research fellow um, and a colleague of mine. She's at the University of Sydney, and she'll be talking on some work in progress about women in combat, the politics of integrating women into combat roles. Um, so I'd also like to think there are four research centers at the Kennedy School who have sponsored today's event, um, supporting the event financially and through the work of their amazing staff for, um, to, to organize the event for today. So that includes the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, the Carr Center for Human Rights, and the Women in Policy Program. So thank you very much to all four of those centers. It's really wonderful to have such collaboration across, across the HKS um, on, this, on this event. Um, one last thing, one last order of business, is that we are going to be releasing today's event as a podcast. So thank you so much to the Women in Public Policy Program for recording the event and to our speakers for agreeing to be recorded for today. Uh, so the talk will be um, available online fairly soon. Um, and we're especially pleased that today's talk will reach beyond just the walls of our room for today. We're actually now at standing room only capacity, which is really exciting. So thank you. thanks again, everyone, for coming. All right, so without further ado, I'm going to welcome our first speaker. This is Dr. Andreas Katsadan. He is a senior researcher at the Frisch Center in Oslo, Norway. He holds a PhD in economics and is a broad social scientist interested in issues of inequality, economic development, conflict, and also gender, which we'll be speaking about today. Um, he's published extensively in many different fields, 
um, including in journals such as the American Journal of Political Science, Social Forces, the European Economic Review, and World Development. Um, we also have a discussant for today, so I want to welcome and thank also for coming, Siri Isaacson. Um, Siri is a doctoral candidate in economics at the Stockholm School of Economics, and she's also this year a Women in Public Policy Program Research Fellow at the Kennedy School. Um, her research uses experimental evidence to understand how gender differences in everyday decision making translates into economic inequalities. Um, and her most recent project focuses on the role of gender in teamwork. And you really can't think of a discussant with more relevant interest to talk about today's paper, so I'm really pleased that she can join us. Um, so the plan for today is that Dr. Katsudan will speak for about 30 to 35 minutes. Um, this will be followed by our discussant series comments for about 10 minutes, and then the remainder of the time will be open to everyone in the room for um, question and answer session. Um, I'm going to request that you hold your questions until the end, unless they are very brief clarifying questions. Um, so that's the plan. Um, so please join me in, in welcoming Dr. Kasadam to our seminar. Well, thank you very much, Dara. Thanks for the invitation. I'm very honored to be here. I used to uh, sit at home and listen to this podcast myself, so it's very, it's very nice to actually be here and, and uh, participating in one. So I'm very, very happy to be here. So this is a project that we have. Uh, we work together with the Norwegian Research Defense Establishment and uh, the Norwegian Army to, to investigate issues of, of gender equality and uh, well-being and so on within the, within the military. So they are very interested in how they can get more women to participate in the, in the armed forces and how they can have more people of minority to continue and so on. So we, we give them some answers on that and we are also allowed to, to investigate the core research questions uh, surrounding peer effects uh, and so on. So the paper I'm presenting today is uh, Does Integration Change Gender Attitudes? It's together with uh, Gordon Dahl at UC San Diego and uh, Don Olofrut at uh, Stockholm University. So the background is that despite women making up almost half of the labor force in most developed countries, occupational segregation still remains very high. So this is just the trend in occupational segregation in, in the US. And as you see, it, so higher numbers is more segregation. As you see, it has slowed quite a bit, but it's still very high, and it seems to have stalled around in the, in the 1990s. Okay? And there are many studies showing that occupational segregation seems to explain a lot of the gender gap. So it seems to be very important in, in order to, to understand the differences between men and women and how much they are. Gender segregation explains quite a bit, as you all know. Okay. So why has this stalled? Well, it may of course have stalled because men and women have different preferences, or because men and women uh, uh, have different uh, preferences for uh, risk or competition or for household work and how if they want to. Uh, how much they want to work and so on. So that's, that's obvious. That may be part of the explanation. But it may also be the case that further integration is hindered by exclusionary gender stereotypes and norms, okay? especially in traditional masculine work environments. Okay? And in particular, it may be the case that employers do not want to hire women in male-dominated fields because they think that that will lower work and morale, growth, cohesiveness, and productivity. It may also be that there are stereotypical attitudes towards uh, gender related to home production and work and so on that affects uh, hiring of women but also affects what women are doing when they are actually hired in organizations, the work tasks they get to do and so on. Likewise, there may be gender identity concerns such as those discussed in Arkilov and Crampton, but uh, that may also 
contribute to this occupational segregation. And this is where this is uh, very very difficult to, to look at from a causal standpoint if you have to use observational data. Okay, so estimate the causal link between gender, attitude, and occupational segregation is filled with problems due to reverse causality, self-selection, and unobserved heterogeneity. So one obvious thing is that working in a male-dominated occupation may cause uh, younger, uh, less gender egalitarian attitudes. Right? That's one thing. But it is also possible, and also probably very likely, that men that work in those type of occupations, they, they, are, uh, they already have other types of attitudes. That's why they want to work there. Right? So if you look at this dynamically across sectors, for instance, it's very difficult to know, is it the case that, is it the case that occupations become more integrated because attitudes are changing? Or is the increased integration responsible for a shift in attitudes? Okay? That's very, very difficult to know. And that, I think, is where we come in with this paper. So what we do is that we, com we, we combine forces with the Norwegian army, and we, took, we, take the, we take the conscripts during their first eight weeks of service during boot camp, so what we do is that we take a baseline survey before they start doing their service, okay? and then we randomly assign them to rooms and squats after they have taken the baseline survey, and then we survey them at the end of boot camp as well. And what do we find? In case you fall asleep during my talk, we find that living and working with women causes men to adopt more egalitarian attitudes. Okay. So I'm going to give you some background, some context. I'm going to talk about the field experiment. Uh, how we analyze these things. I'm going to talk about the main results and then I'm going to discuss our findings as I understand. So, like the rest of Europe and the US, the Norwegian workforce is highly sex segregated. Uh, as in the US, 47% of the labor force was female in 2014. Um, if, we look at, if we look at traditionally male occupations, we see that rather <coughs> the share of the share of women is uh, very low still, so if you look at numbers and firefighters and so on. And we have also some very female-dominated sectors like preschool teachers and so on. So it is very, both in the US and in Norway, so just to give you a sense of Norwegian society, it is, it is very, very segregated. Okay? Interesting here, of course, is the military uh, having uh, about 13 to 15% uh, women in the, in the military. So military conscription in Norway is, is special, right? So, so it's mandatory military draft, but it's highly selective. So, so the military only needs about one-sixth of each cohort of people. So they can select people that have to do it, okay? Since 2010, both men and women are required to, to be screened for service by the military in Norway. And uh, then the one-sixth is taken out to, to serve and go to boot camp for eight weeks. And this is followed by about 10 months uh, further service. And service is mandatory at this uh, time for men if they are chosen. And during the period of our study, service was voluntary for women. Okay. And uh, Norway has been trying to increase the female representation at all levels in the military. And uh, now they have also made it mandatory for women to, to serve. Uh, they are uh, working more and more with gender mixed rooms. So they have had gender mixed squads for a long time, but now they're working more and more to have these squads actually living together as well. So men and women live together and share rooms in the, in the Norwegian army, and uh, it's being increasingly used throughout the Norwegian military. Okay. So the field experiment, how does this work? Well, it works like this. They come in on the first day, uh, and they do a bunch of tests. 
Okay, so they go to the doctor, they go to the dentist, they go to the psychologist, and they come to us. Okay, so we have a session there at the first day where we distribute a survey to them that they answer. Okay. So they go around in groups of about 20 to 30 members. They do not know each other uh, at this date. They come from all over Norway to, to the capital. And they do not know with whom they're gonna serve later on and so on. So they just walk around there, a bit confused and scared, I guess, and uh, wondering what, what this is all about. Uh, so we had one of these, and we had this survey. Uh, and um, so this is not... Yes, so okay, I have to be And uh, okay, so, so then after we did the service, at the end of, well, the end of the first day, they take the plane out to Northern Norway, okay? And when they are flying to Northern Norway, basically, we, we randomly assign them into rooms and squads, okay? So before they arrive at boot camps, they're randomly assigned to these squads. Okay, so we randomly assign them at the troop level, so within each troops, these troop leaders got Excel sheets from us that randomly assigned people into squads within the troops. And uh, the military wanted to have at least uh, at least two women per room, so that uh, women should not be alone in the room. That didn't actually happen, so, so many, many of these officers actually only had one, uh, we should have one uh, in the room and so on. But, uh, so they could definitely override this rule if they wanted. So what do they do in these rooms during these first eight weeks? Well, they do a lot, right? So they, they, they work really closely together. They are together 24-7. They have to wear uniforms 24-7. They are not allowed to leave the base during this period. And since the base is in the, in the woods in northern Norway, North, they are basically spending all their time together, okay? In a very cooperative setting. Then after these eight weeks, we fly to northern Norway. Okay, and we repeat the survey again, and we ask them the questions about the other attitudes. Okay, so I hope the timeline is clear. Any questions on that? You can interrupt me. Okay. So this this buys us quite a bit, right? So this, this says that we, since we randomly assign men and women to teams. We can say that we have some treated individuals and some controlled individuals. So we say that treated individuals, those are the men that share room with female soldiers. And we call them controlled individuals if they do not. So these rooms are about, uh, most of them are between five and seven person rooms. 75% uh, of them are six person rooms. We only have 8% of the soldiers being women in our sample. But that still means that we have about 26% of the men that are treated, right? That are exposed to women and working together with women. Yeah, so treated with women. <laughs> so two thirds of the treated rooms have two women. Uh, we only use information about the assigned rooms, so it may be the case that some people change rooms afterwards and so on. We don't, uh, we don't have data on that, but even if we had, we, 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 it's difficult to know what to do with that because that's obviously a lot of so we know that people rarely change rooms afterwards. So they seem to live in these rooms where they are assigned, and uh, we only use the sign. So what do we do? So this is uh, some Greek letters. So we look at uh, the, the gender attitudes for individual I in squad J at time period T2, that is after eight weeks of service. We have troop fixed effects, since we are randomly assigning people within troops. Uh, we, this is our main treatment variable, that is whether you have a female in your squad. Okay? We uh, control for baseline attitudes, 
And we can also control for a bunch of baseline characteristics that we ask them about. Okay? And the standard as a cluster that rooms is the room is where the treatment is happening. Okay, so we have three main gender-related questions that we ask both at baseline and at end line. Okay? And we make dummies of this question so that evaluate one always corresponds to being more gender equal. Okay, so the first question is. A team performs better when it's made up of the same gender. Okay? And we say that people who disagree on this, they are more gender equal. Okay? So they think that mixed teams are, are equally good. Okay? So this is for the men at baseline and for the women. So we see that 61% of the men think that mixed teams are, are good at baseline, 90% of the women. The second question is: it is important that men and women share households <coughs> equally. And here we see that. 67% of the men think so at baseline already. So this is Norway, right? Which is very good. 87% of the, of the women think that this is very important at baseline. So the third question is, is also related to, to that we found that it was also related to gender. It was not the question that we had in the survey, but that the military had in the survey as part of the larger factory of personality, personality questions. So, and then they basically ask, how well does the following statement describe you? And it is, I am feminine. So what we do with this is that we take, we say that those that do not completely disavow the feminine side, we say that, well, perhaps they are more gender equal, are, so we call that gender identity in some sense. Uh, so 56% of the men are there, the rest of them uh, completely says that this does not fit me at all. So 100% of the women uh, are Okay, so then we also have a bunch of other questions at baseline. We ask people if they have female friends, if they have sisters, brothers. Uh, we have administrative data on their muscle strength, about their IQ, and so on. So we can correlate with these variables. And we see that, well, uh, so, so some of these variables seem to, seem to be more predictive. So having female friends, for instance, uh, you're, you're more likely to think that gender mixed teams are, are a good thing. Uh, so perhaps that's why you have female friends in the first place, right? So it's, uh, it doesn't really say that much, but it says that we have some, some control variables that, that are interesting to also include in the analysis. Okay, so what we do with these control variables first is to look at, well, do they predict, do these variables that apparently predict, uh, apparently predict attitudes, do they predict whether you have a woman on the team or not? And they do not, whether either individually or, or together. This is just a test of the randomization, basically. So that's good. We also test if, uh, if your attitudes at baseline predict whether you have a female on team afterwards. So again, like a test of the randomization. So it does not. So that's also good. And then we can look at the main results. So the main results are if you have a female on the team, so you're about 15, 13% points more likely to think that mixed gender teams are a good thing. Okay? And this is from a baseline of 54%, uh, so it's, it's like 24% uh, increase in, in, in uh, gender egalitarian attitudes based on on, on uh, same gender teams or mixed gender teams. So that's, uh, we definitely like that. Okay, so we also find uh, uh, eight percentage points increase in, uh, in, in agreeing that uh, it is important to share household work equally. And we also find a uh, reduction in the number of people that completely disavow their, their feminine side when, uh, when asked this statement, I am, I am feminine. So we do a bunch of robustness tests in the interest of time, I will uh, not go through this very carefully, but uh, so we do uh, 
yeah, we do a bunch of stuff. So we do first difference model, we, we test what happens when we include and not include missing variables, so on. Uh, one interesting thing is that we, we try to look if there's any difference if you have one female in the room or if you have two or more females in the room. Unfortunately, we don't have that many, so the experiment was not carried out in a way that two tested it, right? Because we thought that they would only have two women uh, on the room, but, but for the variation we have, we have also see if there seems to be a difference, and this does not seem to be a statistically significant difference in, in whether you have one or several women in the room. So one seems to be enough in this case, uh, but I don't know how you want to know. Okay. Well, so the basic thing is if you take this, okay, so the, the, the most standard room size of six people, and you have ID have zero or two women in the room, we find with a smaller sample then, that <coughs> the results are very robust today. Okay. And it's not the case that, and this is, I view this also as an important outcome because uh, pundits are very scared about this, that when you have taking females in the military that the men are going to quit, right? We don't find that. And from an experimental point of view, that's important. We call that, that non-random attrition, right? So if it, if it was the case that people that are treated are, are quitting or not answering the survey to a greater extent, that would have been more problematic for internal validity, and we don't find that. But I also, as I said, I think that's also an important outcome measure, that the men do not leave. Okay, so I want to discuss these results a bit. So what do they mean? As I said, we, we, we find really clear effects. We have a randomized experiment, so they seem to be very large effects of, of working together with women in a very, very close setting. Okay. The magnitudes are larger than the coefficients that we find for the other correlations. When we look at like the correlation between having a sister, having female friends, and so on, uh, that predicts our gender attitudes, these effects actually are actually larger than those correlations. The changes also move men closer to the attitudes of women. So we can actually explain the gap in the mean attitudes between men and women. That gap reduces, depending on the outcome, by between 31 and 46%. So this is a big effect. So we find that the effects seem to be quite general. They seem to affect everyone, more or less. Uh, there's no differential impact for having <coughs> sisters and female friends. There's no, it affects people with different based on attitudes and so on. Obviously, we have some power issues here. It could be the case with a larger sample, we would, uh, we would find more differences along these lines, but we don't, we don't seem to find any difference. It seems to affect almost everybody. Okay. So why do we find these results? Well, we interpret them, first of all, as this is like a test of contact theory. So contact theory says that, well, if you put people together that have equal status in a cooperative setting with an enforcing authority, and when you have some sanctions and friendship potential, then good things happen, okay? Basically, that's a very simplification of contact theory, but, but basically they say that these conditions seem to be really important. And for us, this reads like boot camp, right? So people have equal status, they have uniforms, they have, it's, uh, they have common goals, uh, cooperation, and so on. So we think that this is a very good setting for testing the contact hypothesis. Uh, so we look at gender segregation, most of the convincing studies of contact theory have looked at racial segregation, which perhaps makes more sense, right? Because you, you, everyone here are exposed to having a mother before, at least, right? And people are obviously exposed to, to women before they went to the university. But uh, in terms of uh, racial and ethnic groups, people find quite stark effects. Okay? But there are also other, other types of studies finding other effects. So, for instance, we have a paper before finding that gender discrimination seems to decrease when men are exposed to and working with them. Okay. 
there are also other, except for, for contact theory, it may be other types of exomenism, such as uh, homosocial reproduction. So they, there is some great qualitative work from, a, from a, a woman called Nina Hedlum, who actually went up to these uh, rooms and did uh, field work and lived in these rooms. Okay? So, so uh, after bootcamp, lived in mixed rooms, and found that gender essentialist notions and feeling of sameness, so there were less gender essentialist notions, and increased feelings of sameness among the soldiers. It seems to be the case that when they work together, they, they, they either realize or feel that they are not that different from each other, right? They are all, all, uh, all people. Okay? So it is possible that intense exposures makes male soldiers perceive themselves as more similar to female soldiers and are therefore less skeptical to having them in the same team. Another thing is that, well, perhaps these are two treatments and not one, right? So, so we can look at, so, so some, some are randomly assigned to, to have mixed teams, and some are randomly assigned to be in all male teams, which may be a treatment in itself, right? That's kind of extreme. So coming from high school, where you, you work, perhaps work with women and so on, and then you're exposed to just, just being in this very weird setting and also only working with other men, right? And what we found when we look at like the baseline to the end line, we find that well, those in the those that are exposed only to other men, they seem to they seem to be less uh, egalitarian over time. Okay, so that's negative. And uh, those that are in mixed teams, they seem to be more positive over time. So it actually seems to work in both directions. So we also ask questions about uh, which sex makes the best leader at various levels of command. Uh, we find no evidence here that, uh, that that's uh, effective. And uh, why not? Well, we don't uh, really know, obviously, but it may be that, uh, maybe that uh, since uh, all of these leaders that they are exposed to are basically men, so perhaps I, that's why they didn't change. So when we did another experiment, we, we did a vignette where we had them, had them uh, evaluate uh, uh, a fictive uh, candidate for a squad leader position. So we, we had them read like a, a description of this squad leader, and they should say, is this, is this a good or bad squad leader? Should give them a score, basically. And they were, of course, identical, because we did it as an experiment, and they think that the man was much better, right? Not surprising. So there were discrimination among these people, right? But those that were exposed to women that had lived and worked with them for eight weeks, they did not discriminate at all. So we, so we actually took away so, so when, when we look at actually squad leaders, we find that, well, that type of discrimination seems to, seems to actually disappear. Okay, so, so more policy relevant for, for like uh, military studies, conflict studies, and also for the military itself, is obviously these questions about, well, what happens to the men that are exposed? Do they want to quit? Is it a case that, that this really reduces morale and so on? Uh, does it cause lower performance and dissatisfaction within the ranks? As I said, there are many pundits arguing that this will ruin the military experience. Uh, less cohesive and less prepared fighting units and so on. Okay? So, and they were really worried, uh, some people, that when women enter the military occupation, men will choose to leave them. As I said, we didn't find that already. But we also asked them a bunch of questions about this. So we asked them if they demand if they want to do military service, if they feel qualified, if they have to continue, and if they're satisfied with boot camp, right? So it's not the case that having a female on team has any effect on this. So it's not the case that they, now when they have women on the team and live with women, that they do not like the military anymore. We don't see any indication of that. We see that people are extremely happy with boot camp. There's like almost 98% of them are very happy with boot camp, and there's no difference whether you have a female on your team or not. 
So we find, contrary to the predictions of many policymakers, that uh, this does not result in measurable losses in the agricultural desire to serve, but the preparedness of plans to continue in the military path to boot camp. Okay, so to conclude, what, what I take away from this is that gender attitudes are not fixed, and changes that in attitudes is possible. Okay? And it is possible for the integration of women into traditionally all male environments. And then how far you want to take this, that depends on what you think about the external validity of the findings. But I think the internal validity of the findings are really strong. It's a randomized experiment, right? So we show that you can change attitudes. Okay? So I see this as an existence proof. You can change attitudes. But it is an experiment with very special men exposed to very, very special women in a very special setting, right? So military service, as I said, is mandatory for men, but the military can choose people. So selection is based on ability and motivation, so these men are different than men in general. Okay? They are quite similar to young Norwegians in general, so we compare it to other type of survey data, but they are a bit more right-wing and a bit less gender equal at baseline. In addition, there are very special women, so they are probably even more selected than the men. Right? So they do this voluntarily to start with. So in terms of thinking of external validity, I think this is not very, very different from what we see in the corporate world as well. So we see that in, in corporate boards and stuff, they have very selected men, right? They are probably very able. They like to make money out of other people's work, and they are kind of special men, right? And the women that are there are probably even more special, right? So because they have to fight harder to get this. So I think this is perhaps important for, for very male-dominated environments in general. So here, as I said, when we compare them to, to other young men and women in Norway, we see that, well, they, they are less gender equal. Okay, but the most important thing here is that it's a very, very special setting, right? So we like this setting because it's a clear test of the contact hypothesis. So people having uniforms, they, they, they have to be together 24-7, they have to work really, really closely together, which is good, and we can test this theory, right? But of course, the, the structural content at workplaces, in classrooms, and in team sports, they are weaker. Right? We, we don't know how much we can translate these results to, to other areas. So well, well, what I want to do is that I want to pledge people to do these types of studies in other, other types of settings that are less streamlined so that we can get a, a broader type of knowledge, especially now that we know that we can change attitudes by integration. It's important to know how far can we do that. Okay, that's all. Thank you. questions. Do you think that same-sex perform uh, teams perform better? Uh, 
do you think it's important to share household work equally? And do you agree that I am feminine? Before and after the 8-bit boot camp, and then you compare between treated and untreated groups. Uh, and the results are very strong, uh, showing that gendered attitudes do become more egalitarian in treatment groups. So we see a 14% increase uh, in those that agree the mixed teams are as good or better than Zintix teams. Uh, we see an 8% uh, increase in uh, males believing that uh, it's important to share household work equally, and a 14% increase in those uh, agree that they are feminine. Uh, so these are very strong results, I think. Uh, however, we see non results on changes in attitudes toward uh, female leadership. I think it's important to mention, though, as you were saying, that that's not where the treatment is. So that basically, for me, just means that we see no spillover effects. Um, so let me move over to the strengths. I think that this is a really great contribution. Um, you provide strong results using experimental field data. Um, on an important yet unanswered question uh, from a relevant environment. And I am sincerely surprised that no one has looked at this before. I mean, so much of work today is in teams, and ma many, many sectors are male dominated. And so I think this is a crucial and important question. How are attitudes uh, formed against women in these groups, and what do they look like, and can we change them? Um, I also think that this is strong policy relevance. Um, you show the potential strengths of an easily implemented intervention to shift attitudes that are crucial in the labor market. And what I mean by this is, of course, this is a very specific setting, and it's not easily implemented with them on weeks boot camp. However, what is easy is to add a woman on the team, right? And so I think that this really speaks to the possibility, uh, the positive effect, the possible positive effects of uh, equal opportunity, being an equal opportunity employer, or um, you know, um, using quotas, etc. And you add experimental evidence to this debate that's ongoing in the US, in Sweden, in Norway, whether we should use effective action, whether we should use quotas, whether we should integrate. Because um, I really do think that this could swing both ways. I was thinking about this when I was reading the paper. That, as you're saying, some people argue that this could create negative attitudes towards women. And I think it's really important that you show that this can actually um, so let me move on to my questions and concerns. Um, I, my main concern with this paper is the motivation. I think that you should really frame this as gendered attitudes are important to study. We don't know anything about uh, gendered attitudes and how we can shift them in, in teamwork. Um, yet it's an important topic, as I was saying earlier. Uh, this is the attitude that women need in their everyday life. And we know that everyone knows that attitudes are such an important uh, aspect of uh, our work environment and whether or not we feel valued. Um, I also think it's important due to some of the reference that you bring up. People have argued that don't integrate women into the military, it will ruin the military. And you show that this is not the case. Uh, so uh, I think that, that that's your best reference, the uh, Harold Miller, because there you show that, okay, attitudes are actually brought up as, as an aspect of why this should and yes, and your main reference also was Juliet, uh, 2006, that look at uh, racial, that do the same kind of experiment using uh, minorities instead. They also say it's important to study race attitudes. And of course, we have racial segregation in the labor market in the US as well. But I really do think that uh, starting with attitude, gender attitudes are important to study. And also, why? Well, because if 
you tie this to labor market segregation, you have to uh, argue for the connection between attitudes and labor market segregation. I think that's, that, that's hard. It's easier to just say, this is important per se on its own merit. And I really do think that your paper is a great contribution that stands on its own. You don't need this other statistic. Uh, however, if you do want to proceed by uh, motivating this by labor market segregation, I do think that you need to come up with a very clear mechanism. How do attitudes shape labor market segregation? What is the, uh, the mechanism that you're suggesting? Um, my next concern, which um, I want to bring up is that I think you might have some uh, issues of uh, internal validity and causality because by adding females to these teams, you might be shifting performance in those teams that are treated as well. So what I mean by this is optimally, if you want to study the effect of gender composition and attitude, you need to keep everything else constant and then just add females to the teams. However, the experimental literature that is out there, um, for instance, Hobie Dornaval, uh, that has um, uh, changed uh, gender composition in groups uh, through experiments and looked at whether this changes performance actually show that there are differences. I also have uh, a paper <laughs> that, that finds differences in uh, performance. And I think that this speaks to your favor actually because my assumption, my prior here, is that by treating uh, groups with women here, you might actually lower performance. I'm thinking like muscle strength and such things might be important in this study. And so your true effects might, might actually be larger, and so you might have a downward bias in your data sizes here. Um, my final concern is uh, researcher effect. So uh, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on this too, but I think that if you take a bunch of people and you ask them about gender attitudes, and then they go into this um, boot camp and they see that, okay, my group got females on our teams and those other guys don't. And, it's pretty clear what you're asking for, and, and that might shift uh, the answers in the uh, in the second survey towards social norms such as gender equality, etc. So I would love to hear your your comments on that. So. <laughs> Andres, do you want to take a few minutes to respond, and then we'll open the floor to the group. Thanks. Well, thank you very, very much. These are obviously fundamental and very, very important comments. Uh, I'm very happy to have such a competent discussion. I mean, this is great. Right? So in terms of the motivation of the paper, I mean, it's difficult. How do you pitch a paper? Right? You can do that in many different ways. So we, we, I think that we have kind of a story to say that, well, look at the world, right? So we, why, why is it the case that 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 this gender integration at the labor market has stalled. Well, there are some good reasons to think that attitudes may be important there. And like, you don't want to work in a place where attitudes are, are not, that, not that nice and so on. And then we can see, okay, that's, that's when we actually force people to, that we actually force integration to those attitudes change. But then of course, it's a great leap, as you say, going back and say that, well, hence, that may explain why we have gender segregation because there are all these other things that may still explain the end segregation, like differences in preferences and so on, that we don't really study. Uh, so we can't really say that much about, about the segregated labor market from this study. So I think that's a very good point, and I will, I will sincerely think about whether we should frame it more directly as saying <coughs> the other attitudes are important. I definitely think so. So I, I definitely think that that, uh, that is a strong case. Yes, well, Young attitudes are important, can we change them and take it from there? I think, it, I think it's a very good point. I will think about it a lot. 
Okay, so in terms of um, in terms of these, well, if it affects if it affects performance, okay. So so here I here I don't completely agree with you. I, I think you have, you have a good point, but 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 I wanna I wanna disagree somewhat. So if we're interested, what is the causal effect of assigning women to women to male teams? So say that it affects performance, and performance has some effect on attitudes. That's a mechanism, I view it. That's that something that that explains why attitudes change or explains why attitudes do not change. So even if we would have data, now we don't have, I would like to have data on actual, actual performance, right? Now we don't have it. But even if we would have had it, I'm not completely sure we want to control for it, right? Because it's something that is part of, it's part of the mechanism. If we want to control post-treatment stuff, then we're almost back to la-la-la, land, right? We don't have to run an experiment, we can put together data and run regressions, right? So I think <coughs> While I agree it would be interesting to look also at performance and also see how performance affects attitudes, I'm not completely <coughs> sure that we would like to keep that constant because what we do in our experiment is like we get the total effect, you randomly, you shock these teams, right? You randomly assign women to teams and then we see what happens. And why that happens? Well, it may, may have happened more if performance was not affected, it may not affect performance, we don't know. Uh, it may. Yeah, we don't we don't really know, right? But it's not. I don't think that it's an internal validity question. I think it's, it speaks more to the more to the mechanism. This is the researchers effect. That's a, that's a, a great point. Again, it could be the case, right? That we they know they know what we're after. I don't really think so. And why don't I really think so? So so this survey that we did at baseline is a large survey. So it, it's a question about many many different things. So the military has questions about well-being and so on. We also have a bunch of other questions. So it took 18 minutes uh, on average to answer. So we only have like a few questions on gender. So I, I don't think that is a concern, but I should definitely explain that and, and say that to people so that they know that. I think that's a very good, uh, very good, uh, very good comment. I don't think that they that they know by any means what we are after when we when we do the survey. Um, so why don't we open it up to the group. Do you want to field your own questions, or do you want me to keep track of the list? Okay, great. I will call on people then. Let's start over here. Yeah, go ahead. Just introduce yourself as well when you ask your question. Uh, hi, I'm Max. I'm an extension school student here. And I just had a quick question about contact theory. And I was just wondering if uh, contact theory was part of your original hypothesis, or whether you came upon that after analyzing. Yeah, no, so contact theory was definitely part of our initial plan. So, so this is a project, right? So, so we, have, we have several different papers in this. So we, we feel we feel that a pre-analysis plan will be ethnicity and also one on gender, right? And in that we wrote very clearly that well, the contact theory is extremely extremely likely to, to, to be important, especially for the ethnicity part, right? Coriander is not as clear because I think from a theoretical point of view, because many women have contact much more in general. But I think that the, the specifics of contact theory, they, they they speak so much to this specific context. I think it basically reads like boot camp when I see these conditions. Right? So I think that's uh, I think that's very very likely to, to operate in. Uh, but then I'm not sure that that, that is the only reason. I think that these uh, things that it seems to, when people are, are together, that not only do they, they change their, uh, their empathy or antipathy uh, towards other people, but also that I think I, I would put my money on the mechanism going here is that people perceive themselves as more similar. So in that case, that doesn't really say that contact theory is what's driving this. So it's not like empathy and stuff, but it's just similarity. 
people realize that when they work together and they, 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 they are together all this time, that they, well, men and women are just people, right? And we, we are very similar and we can work together in teams and that works really well and we're very happy together. I think that, but that's, uh, I have no proof of that, but that's my, that's how I see the results. So I have two questions, one on the setting and one on the outcomes. So I chose here with the comments on the researcher effects. I don't really understand why you did a baseline survey in the first place, given that you have randomization. I mean, the whole purpose is to compare the treated and control groups. So asking people the same questions after a couple of weeks, like, I, don't, I don't really understand the rationale. And the second thing is for the outcomes. Um, I, I, are you sure you're like really measuring more equal views on gender roles? Because in a way, you are asking uh, whether teams that are composed both of men and women are more efficient, so you can have a sort of complementarity, um, you know, behind this idea that certain men have certain skills and certain women have other skills, and so it's not really more egalitarian in a way. It's the same thing for um, household work. You could say like, oh, men are better at like lifting heavy things, and men, are, women are better at doing other things. And the last uh, outcome about feminine attitudes, I'm wondering what is the. Um, uh, how is your variable constructed in the sense like have people shift from not at all feminine to not feminine? Or is like, oh yeah, I definitely feel more feminine today after after this exposure. So. Uh, thank you very much. So so about the baseline survey, so so I agree, you don't need a baseline survey, right? So if you have a randomized controlled trial. But in order to but then going back to real life and trying to write a paper and so on, in order to convince people that you actually have a randomized control trial, it's important to show that, well, randomization works. And how do you show that? Well, they can show that with respect to the baseline attitudes. So I think I think a lot of people use that for that reason alone. But another like like more real reason in terms of the analysis is that when you include baseline attitudes, you're controlling for much of the variation. So it's much easier to find effects if you control for like level differences before, so that you can look at the effects on changes in attitudes rather than just differences in attitudes. Because differences in attitudes would be, there's a lot of noise, right? We, we, this does not explain like everything about attitudes. So um, we, and our question is, can we change attitudes? And then we can take away a lot of noise by controlling for baseline attitudes, and then it's much easier to, to name down effects. So, so, so I, 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 if I were going to do this again, I would still have a baseline survey, I have to say. But, but and then again, I think there was like 18 minutes. Uh, I, I, I don't know how many questions there were, but there were definitely over 100 questions. If they remember them uh, <coughs> after eight weeks, well, then they should probably answer the same. People want to be consistent and so on. That may affect our results. I don't think it would affect our results in a in any in any biased kind of sense. But I think it would uh, perhaps perhaps uh, we wouldn't find as much as, as otherwise. But yes, with in terms of the outcomes, I think that well, yes. I mean, it's uh, I view these outcomes as um, having something to do with gender equality, as you as you rightly point out. They are not questions about gender non-essentialism, right? So, so it's definitely the case that these people may still be very gender essential and think that there are clear differences between men and women, but still think that they can work together. Right? For me, that's still gender equal. Uh, I'm, I'm. Uh, doesn't really matter, but I'm, I myself, I think that uh, I'm not the gender essentialist. I think that we are more similar, but but it, but you can definitely see an increase in gender egalitarianism without people thinking that men and women are more similar, just appreciating different skills as well. Uh, the, the question this I am feminine, uh, as I said, we did not create that question. We, uh, 
we used it. Uh, we want to be transparent to use all the questions that have to do with gender. Starting to think about it a bit more, we thought it was kind of interesting. Not like whether people move to become feminine. We don't think that. So, so remember, what we use is the fact that that they some people completely say, "Wow, they said this does not fit me at all." This statement, "I am feminine." And if there's a change in that, I think that could say something. That does not mean that these men become feminine, right? So that's, uh, but it's important. It's important uh, clarification. Um, so back on the um, kind of hypothesis, I know that a lot of the literature over the last several decades has been about which preconditions are required. I mean, all course original formulation, you had to have support of the outside authorities or customs. You had to have equal treatment within the program. Uh, and so I think you make a real contribution if you would weigh in on which preconditions are needed according to your results. Well, thank you very much. We don't have any random variation in that. Uh, we wanted to, so we, we were trying to discuss this with the military. So we were like, well, can't you have some teams that have, where they can decide more, for instance? Can't you have some teams where, where you don't like you try to have that strict rules and, and stuff like that? But that was a no-no. That was like, we, we cannot uh, play around with anything that they actually do there. So, so we don't have any variation in that. But I, I completely agree. I think that in order to understand the external validity of our results and how we can change stuff in the real world outside of the military, I think it's crucial to know what, which of these preconditions are important for, for these effects to materialize. That's a good point. Okay. I'm curious about your plans to continue this research. Specifically, we're speaking that in Norway, post-2015, there is the idea that women are going to be mandatory to serve just as with men. Do you think replicating the experiment will consider or further the considerations of use and policy, or the thoughts your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah, so I would love that. So, so first of all, we are not continuing with the Norwegian military. We are probably going to do some work with the Swedish military, when they are also going to reintroduce <laughs> their their, their uh, mandatory draft. Uh, and also have lots more women. So what I think would be interesting with it is that then we would get a shock in the number of women, so that we would have many more women. So that would be very interesting to see what happens then. Is it the case that then you get micro-segregation again, so that you still have different groups and so on? I don't know, I don't think so, but it would have been extremely interesting to do it. But uh, we are not doing it again in Norway. We did it for two years. I think they felt that uh, they know what they need to know. Uh, I think there are always more things to know. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering whether an alternative or complementary explanation might be status beliefs about women. So it's not just that you're observing women of equal status and role in close proximity, but maybe it's instead or as well that they're gaining more information in rooms where there are women about other men's beliefs and responses in the room about women. So it's sort of like a variation of theoristic ignorance. Yeah. Um, but just wondering if, if you kind of that already. So, so it's difficult to measure. So, so, so I agree. Uh, I think so. In economics, when people look at discrimination, you always discuss like taste-based and statistical discrimination, right? And, and it's it's you that uh, the statistical discrimination is based on information, right? And that could also be the case here that you have some some information, whether correct or incorrect, and then when you're exposed, you're updating your beliefs, and then when you're updating your beliefs, you're changing your attitudes as a rational response to that. That could definitely be the case. The, the, the reason I think that that is not the driving factor here, it could definitely explain a lot of it, and, and that would be interesting. 
But but what we see, remember that those that are those that are uh, assigned all male teams, very extreme. They don't get any new information about women uh, in general, but they actually they actually get uh, less gender egalitarian over time when they're exposed to that. So it doesn't it, it doesn't seem that it's only information. It seems to be something with being together. But I don't know. But, but but I think it's a good point. If if we could have tested that, we could we could definitely have had questions at baseline and afterwards about what they think about about how good women are at specific things and so on in order to test that. I think you also be seeing the change of the men in the room over time to as they change their beliefs about women, yes. like a knock-on effect. Yes. Not, not that, I mean, uh, it would be extremely interesting. So if you could film these people, for instance, during these eight weeks and look at so what happens with the interaction, what happens at day one, and then, because this is like, so in group processes, it's difficult to know, so so if I affect you and you affect me, it's kind of difficult to separate out the two, right? But, but, it, but it's interesting to look at these groups' dynamics over time. We only have like two periods, like before and after. It would be really nice to have Many many measures and see how this evolves over time. And maybe the work from Helen might help uh, the qualitative might give you some yes. insights. Yes. Yeah, so, so I got an, an enormous amount of, of insights from Nina Helen's work on, on, the, on the, the qualitative work on how how that, that shaped my understanding of this, especially the things that it seems to be the case that people perceive themselves as more similar. That that shaped how I view this process. Okay. Thanks. Okay. I have a question. I've forgotten to remind people to introduce themselves. So if you do that, that would be great. Elliot Prager and Hubert. Have you thought to follow up the study with any uh, repeat uh, questioning of these people two years later after they've returned, for the most part, returned to civilian life? See how persistent these effects are. Yes. So, yes. I think that's, <coughs> so in, terms of, in terms of this as a research paper, I think that's very crucial. We think that there are some research methods these days uh, showing uh, an enormous decay, right? So you can affect people's attitudes and then they seem to go back to normal. Uh, that's, that's problematic uh, from, from a policy perspective that we can, perhaps we can't really change people over the long term. So I, I totally think that would be very interesting. So we asked them in the survey if we can contact them again, and uh, almost everyone said yes. So we are planning to do that. We're planning to wait a few more years uh, and then contact them again. To, to, so I have the same questions, and exactly as you say, see, does, are they still having different uh, attitudes? Um, so I agree. We are going to do that. We're going to wait a few years. We also asked them if we could connect them to the fantastic Norwegian registry data. So, so uh, if they say yes to that, we can look at like where they live, where they work, who they're married to, uh, and whatnot, right? So, and we're also planning to do that because people thought that that was an okay idea as well. So, we are also planning to look at this long term and see see how it affects other types of outcomes later on in life as well. My my prior would be that the effects will be much smaller over time, unfortunately. Uh, I don't know that, right? But that's my 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 best guess would be that, unfortunately. Or perhaps they get better and better over time. Who knows? Perhaps I can come back in five years. Maybe I'll put myself on the list. Um, I, so I was curious about why these particular dependent variables in terms of the gender-related question. I didn't, it wasn't clear to me if those were questions that the Norwegian military were, was invested in um, or if you were able to insert your own questions. But from the perspective of policymaking, and just to play devil's advocate for a second, 
why do I care what people think in terms of sharing household tasks within their home? It seemed a more interesting policy question would be something like, how likely are you to vote for a, a female candidate for office? Or, um, But, you know, something sort of on a grander scale outside just in terms of how household tasks are split up um, and their kind of gender equality views about just the family micro unit. Um, why not something about their kind of broader ideas about policy making or the military? Yeah, uh, great point. So, so some of the questions we made ourselves and have to be completely responsible for, some of them we did not. So the design feminine question was not ours. Uh, the other ones we, we wanted because we thought that uh, one crucial aspect policy-wise is what, what people's attitudes about mixed gender teams are. So we think that's an interesting question. This question on household work, I think it is very important for for gender equality in general people's views about household work and we, we don't really understand how those views change I have I, I, it is also a question that is used in a lot of a lot of surveys on gender equality as a proxy for gender equality in general it also seemed to be very important for the for the gender equality in society what couples do within the household so I have a, I have a series of papers on that uh, before like looking at the daddy quota and how that affects uh, household work within the house and so I think it is a very transformative arena for social change to if we can affect people's households uh, decisions and how they interact within the household that is probably very very transformative for society so I think that question is good but I completely agree with you I think that it would have been really interesting to ask them about what they think about the female president or prime minister or, or uh, what have you right I think that would be very interesting so as I said we have another paper where we look at these vignettes so we have them we have them evaluate a candidate for a squad leader and there we find that we can change the amount of discrimination towards squad leaders uh, by having people working together which I think is is important to policy right on if I think it would affect the views on like prime ministers and stuff perhaps not right since we do not see any effects on on this if they think that men or women are better as troop leaders or if they think that men and women are better as like in the highest ranks of the military so perhaps Perhaps that speaks a little bit to your question, and, and perhaps we should be less pessimistic about uh, how far these results will travel in that direction, since we don't find anything there. Um, I have, my name is Daniela Filipsa. I am an FP1 student. I have a technical question regarding the model and your control variables for sister and female friends. Um, why sister? I'm curious to know why sister, and not uh, maybe characteristic, characteristics concerning mother. Because at least in Latin America, it's been uh, found that, for example, scholarly levels or the years of education for the mother, as well as whether the mother works or not, also very much defines gender equality and how men perceive um, women and gender equality. Yes. No, so, so, so I agree. Uh, we do, in fact, include those. So, so the, the, the reason why I focus on sister is that that seems to be very predictive in our data. It mm -hmm. seems to seems to actually predict the attitudes. Uh, but we also include whether your mother is working, and we also include mothers and fathers' education, 
we, we do that uh, as well uh, in the controls. Uh, it, it is interesting from a research perspective, I think the sister stuff is very interesting because having female friends and um, having working mothers and so on, that's probably correlated with so many other stuff. So, so, so making like a causal statement of well, how does that actually affect your attitudes is difficult because it's correlated with so much else. But uh, whereas having a sister is uh, it's more or less random whether the firstborn is a sister, at least, right? But, uh, but uh, yes, so, so my co-authors on this paper, Gordon Dahlia, has a paper on some preference, right? So it's, uh, it may be that if you have a, have a brother first and then you are born, it's less likely that you have more kids. So, so it's not completely random. But I think it's at least more exogenous than like having, uh, having female friends. So, so I like the sister question. My name is Ayako uh, from uh, Research Fellow of the Harvard Sphere Center. Uh, I have a question about contract, uh, contact theory. Uh, do you think the, this theory holds true for minorities at change of uh, minority attitude change? Because if the gender equality is the case, we have to pay attention to the minorities as well, and uh, like women in men dominant environment, and you know maybe most probably minority members like have some kind of feeling of inferior you know inferiority so that's why I, yes this is my question what do you think about this yeah. so so i'm very glad you you asked so so in terms of minority you can think of this in different ways i wish first choose to interpret your question that allows me to give some uh, ads for my other research so so in terms of minorities we also look at, at uh, ethnic minorities uh, within this setting and we, we find that if you're exposed to second generation immigrants for eight weeks you're more likely to trust the immigrants more so we have to play a trust game with real money and we find that they actually send more money to a guy called ali which is not a non-norwegian name than to a norwegian guy right we find that they actually send more money so it affects the so I think that, and there I think context here is much more potent because you, these are people that have probably not met that many immigrants before. Yeah? So I think that's that's the first way to to, to uh, interpret your question. But then also, of course, women are minorities in these settings, right? And that's the other way to interpret your question: that well, how much of this is that minority? So what would be interesting here, of course, that people are talking in research often talk about critical mass and so on, that if you have one woman or two women, they become tokens, right? So you believe them as representatives of their gender and they are not individuals, right? But when you will have more women, they will be, have to interpret them as they have individual differences and so on. Unfortunately, we can't really test that here because there are so few women and we don't uh, have a lot of variation in how many women we have. But that would definitely be interesting to see. Is it a critical mass thing? I would believe so. It makes sense for me, but I don't know. Thanks. Hi, I'm Miles Cagnes. I'm a National Security Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, and I'm a U.S. Army officer and have served uh, in gender-integrated units for, for two decades. Um, a lot of times, the arguments about gender integration in the military are based on either capable, men asking or people asking are women capable, and on the other hand, cohesion, or sometimes both. Did you consider asking a question in your pre-test and post-test of <coughs> do you think women are capable of being soldiers, or do you think women will add or subtract from the cohesion of the military, or of the barracks, or the squad, or whatever size. Uh, ex 
excellent comment. No, unfortunately we did not. I mean, uh, I would have loved to do it. Uh, it seems very spot on, uh, especially once we know the results. So if we're going to do this again uh, in Sweden, I think we should definitely go into that. I think that separating those types of, of issues is, is very important. I think also, so, so remember, these women in the Norwegian army, they are highly selective, right? So first of all, they want to serve. Uh, and they are they have to pass uh, stringent tests of, uh, of strengths and so on. So they are highly selected. But then you can imagine that when you increase the number of women in the in the in the army and start forcing some women to enter as well, that these aspects may become even more important. That uh, perhaps uh, perhaps if they don't want to be there, or if if you if you select from a, from another part of the distribution, that that will change. Uh, we don't know that. But I, I think it would have been very interesting to see. I think the results, if you're going to interpret the results, that they have to some sense suggest that, so if you look at this, the young teams perform better. If they were really thinking that cohesion went down and that women are not as capable, they would probably answer that no, gender mixed teams are a bad idea, I think. But, but it would probably be much more directly to ask them these questions. So I agree. <coughs> Um, Kate Speeds, I am actually currently at the School of Engineering in the Graduate School of Design uh, and a, a Marine Corps officer. And my question is actually um, the focus is on treating or changing men. Um, and I think, in terms of the first eight weeks of boot camp, that's really an applicable question. But if you're starting to extend the study to a year, two years, ten years, and farther down the line, that initial statistic of how many women are there, it always decreases. And I'm not saying that your plan is to change uh, those results, but uh, I think future results, you want to see why it is that it continues to decrease. And this is just um, a guess, I don't have research for this, but that when you put one or two women in a, in a room of six or seven men, um, then there is weight on them that affects the changes that you've displayed in this study. And over time, what that weight is and how that affects whether they stay or leave. And I think that that, um, that has not been flushed out in any sort of research that I've ever seen. Um, but it could be something that it, if you follow up on this study in five or 10 years, and you included women in uh, maybe a tailored or targeted set of questions, you could start to see what that weight is. Because yes, it's, it's I think really important to quantify these numbers, but we also want to understand why women don't stay. How do we quantify that? Yeah. Uh, I think that's a, that's a very, very good point. It, it's a bit different research question. So, so, so one thing is that we're so very interested in exposure here, right? So it's, uh, all women are in mixed uh, squads to start with, so we don't really have anything to compare them with. It would also have been interesting to have complete, uh, complete yeah, segregated teams with only women to compare with as well, and to, to look what, what happens to the, to the women. So we're only looking at the men here for that reason, that uh, some men have mixed rooms and some men do not, as all women have mixed rooms. But, but what we could do already now, I think, and I, I'm going to look at it in the data, I think it's a good thing. <coughs> so we have the attitudes of the men, right? And we have the, the questions to both the men and the women if they want to continue in the military and so on. So we could look at, so, so women are randomly assigned to rooms. So some women will be assigned to rooms with, with men that have uh, other types of gender attitudes, and some women would be assigned to rooms where, where people do not really think that women should be there, and look at how that affects the probability that they want to stay. And uh, since we find that that attitudes are, are improved by, by segregation, that could 
then point to a situation that, well, if you actually have integration, then attitudes will change and then more women will stay, right? So I think that's, a, that's a, if we find that, I think that would be very interesting and also increasing the importance of this. Hi, Moya. Um, my name is Mary McCauley. I'm a mid-career. I'm also a um, technical lieutenant on the <coughs> police. One of the things I'm really interested in is a lot of the point you just brought up, which is, so for my agency, it's also very self, very selective for women. Because not only do you have to take the test, but then to get actually through the process to actually start on day one of the academy is another whole level of processes. So the women that actually make it, and there are very few that do, um, really want to be there, and it's a very special, you know, selection. What I see is that then after that, the rate of women washing out and not finishing the program, not finishing the academy, is significantly higher than um, the percentage of men we see leaving. And I'm wondering if the point that you made in your study about this exposure to uh, females at a relevant, I think you used the word relevant level, how that might translate to better results long term, and whether or not there's sort of a tipping point or a number that we could look at to say, you know, you need a certain percentage to start with in order to affect that rate of, of uh, attrition. Uh, because obviously, unlike the military, we don't have any mechanism to pull people back in. They could just walk out the door. And, and so there's, there isn't that sort of implicit tie-in um, for, for our agency. But it, I'm curious as to whether or not there's something that you found in your research that would indicate that, you know, but for having a certain level to start with, the, the results are almost preordained. And that's, I'm wondering, because over time, you know, that's what I see, and especially now, more than ever, I've been in this for 25 years, the percentage of women coming in to my field is diminished so significantly, it's, I mean, it's, it's almost, it's virtually going to be non-existent within the next five, five years or so, five to ten, minimum. Uh, and same with other, with other um, groups, other minority groups. Uh, but I'm just wondering yeah, about that. So, so, yeah, very interesting as, as, uh, as I said to other questions as well, it would have been very interesting to, to see over time when you get more and more women, how these things uh, play out. Uh, we have, uh, I think we have eight uh, percent women uh, here in our study. Uh, so what we are using is the variation that some rooms have a high share of women, right? Because they have two out of six that are women. Uh, but uh, and that's a high share exposure, you could say. But uh, I agree, it would have been very interesting to, to see over time when it become more and more women, how these things play out. And as you say, it's probably going the other way as well. So if you have fewer and fewer, it, uh, yeah, so it's like all social social things, right? They have the snowball effects. I think that's spot on. Anyone else have a question? Yeah. All right. Well, thanks everyone for coming.